From WXXI News, I'm Jasmine Singer, and this is Environmental Connections. Today's connection starts in my own backyard, which recently taught me a big lesson about rain and our environment, not to mention what it means to be a good neighbor. The adventure began with a mission to fix our yard's drainage. My wife and I wanted to stop our basement from flooding every time it rained, so we brought in landscapers and graded our backyard away from the house. Unfortunately, in our ignorance, I've only lived in apartments before this, we didn't think about how our actions would affect our neighbor. After the next big rain, our backyard essentially became a water slide, directing a flood right into our neighbor's basement. Oops, sorry, neighbor. A clear case of good intentions, unexpected outcomes. But here's the good part. We fixed it. Along with our neighbor and some very patient experts, we managed to solve the drainage issue and made our yards even better at handling rainwater. This episode today was a real eye-opener in how everything we do is indeed connected to the larger environment around us. So, in this episode, we're diving deep into the world of rain because it's way more than just water falling from the sky. It replenishes our fresh water. It supports life. And yes, sometimes it causes a bit of chaos. Today, we'll explore the problem and then we'll pivot to how people are getting creative with solutions. Think green roofs, rain gardens, and smart, sustainable ways to live in sync with the rain rather than fighting against it. So joining me this journey to discuss the ups and downs of rain from my backyard mishap to innovative solutions are an incredible panel of experts. We've got Dr. Karen Berger, a hydrologist. I always say that wrong. I've actually been practicing saying it. Is that weird? You said it exactly okay, right. Okay, great. As I said, I always say it correctly. Dr. Berger is an associate professor of earth and environmental studies at the University of Rochester, as well as the co-chair of the University Council on Sustainability. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for thank, being here. Thanks so much for having me. Really grateful you are. Our next guest is Jessica DiMazio, the general manager of Bracolo. Tell me how I just said that wrong. And you're very... You're I'm, doing great. I need more confidence. Brocolo is, yes, thank okay. you. Okay, Brocolo Garden Center specializes in environmental landscaping. I wish you were there during my mishap. I could have helped you. You really could have. <laughs> I'm sure you'll help a lot of people today. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for having me. And our third guest today is Clem Chung, no stranger to WXXI. Clem is the Deputy Director of the Monroe County Department of Environmental Sciences, where he leads various environmental initiatives, including climate change mitigation and adaptation strategies. Hi, Clem. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on. I'm so grateful that all of you are. Dr. Berger, let's start with you. We have so many things to get to today. Can you please ground us in an understanding of whether we're getting more rain in the Rochester area? And if so, why? One of the big things that we're seeing is not, not that we're getting more rain over the long term, but the rainfalls that we have tend to be heavier. And that has to do with the fact that our air temperatures are warming and warmer air can hold more water. So when it does rain, we tend to get more rain at a time, which obviously has impacts when it comes to backyards or streets or other places that we have to manage it. I feel like I need a panel of experts every time I make any choice in my house from now on. If you can all please be available, that would be great. So Karen, what are the problems and maybe some of the benefits of all of this additional rain? Well, certainly a benefit is that we need water for lots of our resources and to the extent that we can get it to where we can store it and access it later, that is unquestionably a benefit. Um, the challenge is when it overwhelms our infrastructure and can cause issues on our roads and our basements and other places like that. So it's really a question that I think we'll delve into today is what are the strategies we have both in the built environment as well as a natural environment to get that water to where it can percolate into the ground or get into a waterway and be taken safely where we can then use it. I definitely want to get into all of that. Before we do, can you help us understand the implications that increased rain has for flood resilience and infrastructure? So when we talk about flood resilience, it's a question of can we manage that extra rainfall? And so I would say the question is, um, do we have the both structural and natural systems that can handle those increased flows? Um, that would really be the essence of resilience. If, if the system can change and we still have uh, facilities that are able to handle it. Mm. Yeah, well, does the song Here Comes the Rain 
or again, go through your head all the time, by the way? Yes. Just me too. Okay, good. Because I really, I, I tried to call this episode, Here Comes the Rain, but there were a lot of people who are just, they didn't get the reference. So I'm glad you do. How should we be thinking about water management here in Western New York, given these projections? I think we really want to focus on how we can enhance natural solutions in many situations. And I think that's what we're going to hear about when we talk about rain gardens and uh, biofiltration and strategies like that. Um, certainly in some situations we need structures, but uh, there's a lot of ways that the earth already knows how to handle that rainfall and can also have additional benefits with pollinators and, and aesthetics and lots of other benefits as well. Mm. So I think thinking about how do we take what we already know works and um, put it into an existing city and community that has space limitations and um, certainly constraints that we, that we have to address. And yet we are a climate migrant uh, haven for many people. A lot of people are coming here because of the long-term good projections. Is that right? Yeah, that's certainly what I've heard that, um, you know, we, we don't have wildfires, we don't have um, strong hurricanes and sea level rise and some of those other issues that people are worrying about. And of course, I should say I moved here because of climate change. I moved here because of my understanding, studying the New York Times climate change map. Rochester seemed like an excellent place to move. Uh, there are a few other places, Duluth being one of them. I think that was recently fo uh, featured on The Daily Show. They, they featured a climate migrant couple going to Duluth, but Rochester, Buffalo, Western New York in general, it's supposed to be an excellent place. So, And that has a lot to do with our water and our, and our temperature, but I think it's also important when we think about being a climate haven that we also think about the capacity of the people who are already here to be able to adapt to the changes yeah. that we're seeing, that we don't want to just be well welcoming for the people who are entering, but also make sure that we're safe. And certainly a lot of the work the county has done on um, resilience and vulnerability assessments is, speaks to that. Yes, and I do want to chat about that as well. If you're just tuning in, I'm Jasmine Singer, not Evan Dawson, but you are in the right place. This is Environmental Connections, a monthly series here at WXXI, the last Friday of the month. We are talking right now about rain and its long-term implications, the way it's changing, how we can prepare for it, how we can prepare for people who are moving here because of the good climate projections or relatively good. If you're listening to this, we want to hear from you. So give us a call at 844-295-TALK. That's 844-295-8255. If you're local, you can call 263-9994, or you can email us at connections at wxxi.org. Jessica DiMazio, manager of Bracolo Garden Center, which specializes in environmental landscaping. You're on the ground. Probably yes, literally on the ground. You yes. are like an on the ground person. Do you get many clients coming to you to solve rain related challenges? We do. Um, you know, I think it starts a lot of times with people saying there's a wet area in their their lawn that, that they have a hard time mowing. Um, and, and it isn't that's not where their mind really is with, you know, the water coming off of their roof or why it, it is happening. But um, that's where we can come in and kind of start with the conversation. Um, and in, in circumstances like that, it could just be as simple as putting in a rain garden, um, just a little section to, to absorb the water in that one area. Um, but we do like to take it a step further and, and try talking to them about other solutions, um, how, to, how to keep the water that hits your property on your property. Hmm. Like what kinds of solutions would you in, in that instance? Because I, I bet a lot of people listening to this have had that that mud puddle and we're like, please don't let the dog run in that one spot. But of course, that's where they go immediately. I might be talking from personal experience. Of course, of course. Um, yeah. And don't worry, my my yard is rarely has grass on it, but I have too many dogs. But besides that, um, <clears throat> is there a such thing? Coming up next. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, so solutions would include, you know, connecting, like getting your first look at your, your gutters. Um, and it's something as simple as directing your gutters um, rather than going towards a storm drain um, or, you know, emptying out and just to a random area in your yard, um, directing them into uh, a, an area that you've designated for you know, planting and, and putting plants in that, that capture water, the right types of plants. So knowing what types of plants to use. Um, there's solutions, you know, green roof solutions, but typically homeowners don't really go down that road, or at least not yet. Um, and, and that's been more for, you know, more of a corporate kind of thing where that's built in. But 
uh, into planning. But yeah, I think it, it is just redirecting water on your landscape, rain barrels, um, you know, capturing the water and, and using it for different purposes. What about materials or technologies? Like maybe certain materials are more absorbent than others. Like, you know, we just put in a brick patio recently because I think it was my understanding. I hope I'm right. I feel like I'm going to get a D if, <laughs> if I'm wrong. But I, it was my understanding that brick is highly absorbent. Yeah, there are certain more permeable materials than others. Absolutely. And you, what you really want to do is look at what the base is. It is. And when you're putting in kind of a brick, I did it, I hit the microphone. We all hit the microphone. Um, <laughs> it's part of the whole experience. Putting in bricks or pavers, you just want to make sure your drainage is built in the right way. Um, you know, having the crushed stone, the pea gravel, um, and that type of base installed. And then, of course, yeah, the, the upper level, you want it to be a permeable material. Okay. Well, I, I have a few more questions, quite a few more questions for you. Not about, not just about your dogs, I should say. <laughs> but before we go to Clem, I just want to turn to Karen for one second. What about community actions? Are there innovative approaches for neighborhoods and towns to increase rain resilience that individual homeowners can't take on their own? Yeah, so municipalities are able to get grants for green infrastructure. For example, Brighton had one along Monroe Avenue between 12 Corners and um, Westfall Road um, that really looked at the area along the road to um, increase access uh, for the stormwater to get into the ground there. Um, there have also been projects in the Buckland Creek watershed, you know, that was involving individual homeowners, but it was it was part of a collaborative project to try to reduce flooding there and reduce runoff into Buckland Creek. Um, and so those were opportunities that the town advertised to individual homeowners, they could get, say, a rain garden put in at no cost. Mm. Um, I was really unhappy that I was just outside the boundary of the Buckland Creek watershed. Oh, but, yeah. um, you know, I think those kinds of, of educational programs and really providing the service free, so it doesn't have to be a homeowner going and looking for it, but going to the farmer's market where we often have education and you can learn this is something you can do and mm. you can have someone come check it out um, is a good way to get the community more broadly involved. Dr. Karen Berger, thank you so much. Clem, let's turn to you now. Clem Chung is the Deputy Director of the Monroe County Department of Environmental Services, where he leads various environmental initiatives, including climate change mitigation and adaptation strategy. Cool work you've got there. Can you catch us up on the technology being used today to manage Monroe County's combined sewers and also what challenges Monroe County faces in updating its infrastructure to cope with the increased frequency of heavy rainfall? That's a great question and I would like to start because I'm sure there are some listeners out there that may not be familiar with the term combined sewers. So sewers are pipes that take water um, from one place to another. We are most familiar with sewers, uh, sanitary sewers, which take the waste away from our homes and our businesses, take them to our treatment plant. And there are also storm sewers, which take rainfall away from areas where it's heavily wet and taking it to areas where um, the water bodies can assimilate them. In the 1800s and 1900s, it was common to have both of those different types of pipes combined into one and that's what we call combined sewers. And back then, there wasn't a lot of rain flow that was directed into the infrastructure. A lot of the rain flow um, was able to percolate into the ground because there wasn't as much impermeable cover. So there wasn't as much buildings, rooftops, uh, roadways, parking lots. So it was a, a lot easier for the ground to assimilate the water, the rain, when it fell on the ground. As cities developed and you started to see more of these impervious surfaces, that accelerated the what we call runoff water coming from the surface towards our drainage pipe system. And all of a sudden, this, those pipes that were put in and designed for a certain amount of flow capacity, they became overwhelmed. So uh, when that happens, there are relief points in the system where if there's just too much water to go in the pipe, it has to come out somewhere. And back in the day, um, for example, in the Genesee River, we would see somewhere up to like 90 overflows from our sewer system wow. every year. So 
Um, back in the 1960s, there was a concerted effort to try and address this problem on a system-wide level across the entire county. And a lot of the treatment plants, the sewer systems that were separately maintained, were combined into one larger system. And um, the creation of what we call our Combined Sewer Overflow Abatement Program mm -hmm. um, was implemented between the 1970s and the 1990s. So now those 90 overflows um, that we used to get are now reduced down to three, which is what the DEC, the state regulator, um, says that that's kind of an acceptable level for those kinds of discharges on an annual basis to go out into our water bodies. So I'd say about 90%, sorry, 99% of all of those flows that use to go into the rivers and to the um, Aramacoit Bay and those other watersheds is now captured in our system, stored in the tunnels, and then released gradually to our larger treatment facilities that can handle that flow and treat it in a lot better way than they used to do. Wow, well that's, that's good to know. It's not often I get to be super optimistic on environmental connections, but <laughs> on to more optimistic topics. The, how has Monroe County incorporating green solutions into its water management practices? So that's kind of like the double-edged sword. So we were very, uh, very early on investing a lot of dealing with these, you know, large water challenges. Um, and back then, the technology emphasis was all on what we call gray infrastructure. So those large tunnel, you know, uh, engineered systems. Um, there wasn't much thought given back then to more what we see today. It's kind of the idea of keeping the water out of our infrastructure. And that's kind of what really green infrastructure does. It keeps it away from those pipes um, and those systems and lets it kind of store gradually percolating through our ground. Um, mm -hmm. The county has um, taken the lead with the city of Rochester over the years in kind of educating the community about green infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We developed a green infrastructure uh, guidance manual in conjunction with the city of Rochester. And we actually partnered with a number of institutions, including the Rochester Museum and Science Center, to put a lot of um, demonstration projects of what a rain garden could look like, what permeable pavement could look like, um, and give people an opportunity to kind of test those things out. Because whenever you, whenever you try to implement a new technology, there's always some concern about how do you operate it? How do you maintain it? What are the challenges that come along with that technology? So we feel like um, our role in the county very much is to help lead the way and to help answer some of those questions that our community members might ask so that when they want to do the same thing, when they want to do the right thing, you know, we've kind of taken some of that guesswork out for them. Oh, okay. Well, I love that. And can you highlight any successful partnerships or collaborations with local organizations or communities in improving rainwater management that sure. you've undergone? So. Monroe County takes a leading role in what we call the Monroe County Stormwater Coalition. So every county across New York State has a stormwater coalition. And that is a collaboration between all of the municipalities on how they manage their, um, their stormwater infrastructure, their stormwater um, assets, and just in general how they manage drainage. Um, Monroe's stormwater um, coalition is kind of seen as a model uh, across the state for how well we collaborate between all of the towns and villages. And we kind of share the responsibilities. So for example, while we might not be able to do like physical construction projects um, as a county, we can provide educational resources. So you may have seen the HTO Hero logo mm -hmm. on catch basins and on posters. You know, that's all educational programming that comes out of Monroe County that helps support our partners in towns and villages um, and helps educate the public about the issues around uh, both water quality and water quantity and you know, try to make sure that our waterways are clean and safe t uh, for people to use. What are you most excited about with everything you're working on? Uh, well, so we have obviously a big responsibility with managing water. Um, as you mentioned, you know, one of our responsibilities in our department is managing the county's um, sustainability strategy. Mm -hmm. So we're currently working on our climate action plan and following on from our climate action plan, which is kind of focused on greenhouse gas mitigation, will be addressing kind of the impacts of climate change in our climate adaptation and resiliency plan. I'm excited about that too. All right, well, you're listening to Environmental Connections right now. I'm Jasmine Singer. I have such an incredible panel of experts here. I'm gonna to move to Dr. Karen Berger. Karen, moving into the future, I imagine that communities everywhere are dealing with this issue, at least, at least ones who aren't dealing with drought, right? And so I'd love to know, are there any innovative solutions from around the world in flood management and sewer system resilience that you're finding inspiring or potentially applicable to Monroe County? 
And I think one place you can look for some really good um, multidisciplinary flood resilience work is, say, Lower Manhattan, right? So they were inundated by Hurricane Sandy and really had to think about how do we protect our people, our buildings, our infrastructure in the future. And so they have a whole set of projects that are happening there, and it's everything from, from flood walls that don't block views to temporary structures that can be put up when you have to deal with, say, a hurricane coming in. Um, they also are looking at elevating structures and making sure that people have access to the views, to the pathways um, at the same time. And so that seems like it was a very collaborative design process that got a lot of different parties involved to say, how do we re-envision um, lower Manhattan to be safer from flooding. Um, you know, there's also some interesting things you can do off campus, you know, increasing oyster reefs, for example, um, to try to slow down waves as they come, you know, less relevant for us because we're not in a coastal area, but some of the strategies that they are doing in lower Manhattan are relevant along Lake Ontario, where there's been flood issues. Um, and then there's also the question of what are the strategies we do away from the rivers and the coast? Because for a long time, we just thought about flood risk being along rivers or being along coastlines. But a lot of the flooding that we see comes from these heavy rains where you're nowhere close to a water body. So you don't think of yourself as being flood prone. Mm -hmm. And so there it's a question of how can we do plantings that will really absorb these waters? How can we think about removing pavement, planting more trees um, to really increase the water absorbing capacity when these heavy rains are coming in all parts of the environment, not just along rivers and coasts? I mentioned I moved here from LA, but I was mostly in lower Manhattan. That's where I was for 20 years. And I, I worry about lower Manhattan. And so it's interesting for me to hear you talking about it. Uh, what do you think Lower Manhattan will look like in, ten, let's say, 10 years? I think it will look less different than people feared it would after Sandy, because I think the first reaction is we're going to build lots of big walls to, to protect ourselves. And of course, one of the challenges there is that if the water comes and you have a wall, you're sending it off to your neighbors, sort of like your accidental landscaping yes. happened. Um, we but, don't need to bring that up again. Sorry, <laughs> I won't. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think it will you know, as, as they thoughtfully say, how can we integrate parks? How can we integrate green space? How can we have flood barriers that just come up when we need them? Um, some of it will be evident, but some of it will be behind the scenes. Um, and when that hurricane is coming, the people probably won't be around to look at it, except for those crazy daredevils who, right. who want to watch the waves coming in. I, yeah. <laughs> All right, we have a question from CY who sent in a question. How are the types of landscaping in terms of plant life species changing in relation to the increased heavy rainfall and temperatures in our area? Example, plant species that are not currently widespread natives, but that are better at handling large volumes of rain at one time or more tolerant to the changing climate zone. Do you want to take that, Jessica? I can. Um, it's actually incredible how much in the last couple of years, people are using the word native more and even calling in and asking for specific plants, um, you know, for high rain uh, volume situations or even for native caterpillars. Um, so the Garden Center has really focused on this and these changes and has started growing almost exclusively all native plants um, in, in what we're offering. And um, just depending on the situation, obviously if we're going into an area that is pretty drought stricken, we're certainly going to using those types of plants and, and grasses and just educating ourselves on, on, on what to do and what not to do. Um, but yeah, it has certainly changed the way we are looking at the, the plant choices. Okay. Well, thank you for that question. And we have a caller, Kevin from Rochester. Welcome to Environmental Connections. Thank you so much for calling in. What's your question? Thank you. Uh, my question is for uh, Jessica um, from Bracolo. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to the issue of cosmetic lawn chemicals. Excuse my phone. Sorry, I have uh, an alarm going off. Um, cosmetic lawn chemicals. Um, and I asked... Um, specifically about uh, drinking water safety and uh, health. Um, I noticed that uh, uh, being from Bracolo, uh, Bracolo still actively participates in the distribution of lawn chemicals like 
2,4-D and uh, glyphosate and other things that are endocrine disruptors and cancer-causing. Um, in fact, some of my neighbors still spray their lawns um, from Bracolo specifically um, with lawn chemicals, and I know what it does to the environment is horrible. What it does to human health and pet health and pollinators is horrible. And then, of course, the drinking water will, uh, from the runoff, beach closings, you know, the whole on down the line. So I just wonder if you could speak to that because I think that is a huge, huge issue when we're talking about water. Mm. Yes. Thank you, Kevin. Jessica, yeah. Absolutely. Um, we agree at Percolo. Um, our, our methods are, are much different um, than some of the other, um, some of our competitors, I guess, let's say, where we will focus really specifically on IPM practices, not blanket treating anything, focusing on spot treatment, using them only when absolutely necessary. We don't do things like grub control where you've got, you know, people, they've got the idea that they need to just dump this on their lawn every year, whether they think they need it or not. Uh, so integrated pest management, you know, it really are, it, it focuses on some of the cultural practices that we can do. And we also do focus on lawn minimization um, where we do know that the average homeowner isn't gonna wanna completely eliminate their entire lawn. Um, but looking at it as, are there mere areas that you could stop mowing, stop treating? So these are always going to be um, things that, that we're going to consult with mm -hmm. people, you know, our, our customers on. So we really do try and minimize that sort of impact and promote, you know, less, less mowing and less lawns. Right. The, I like the uh, lawns. Well, it's like food, not bombs, but do you know what I'm talking about? It's lawns, not bombs. <laughs> I don't know the saying. I wish I did. Though. It's it's not even just a saying. It's like a whole movement. I'll oh. look it up during our break. We are going to okay. take a break. We have a lot more ground to cover. See what <laughs> I did there? <laughs> but we're going to do that right after a pause, and we'll be right back right now. I'm Evan Dawson. Monday on The Next Connections, we talked to former delegates of the Democratic National Convention. Typically, the convention just affirms what the primary voters decided. But the New York Times' Ezra Klein says Joe Biden could still decide he's not up for running and he's going to drop off the ticket and it could be thrown to the convention. What would happen? We'll discuss it Monday. Welcome back to Environmental Connections. I'm Jasmine Singer, and Environmental Connections is a monthly series. We started here at WXXI. Today we're discussing in a topic that I think so many of us care about. It's impacting all of us if we're existing right now, and it's rain and water. And as we were talking about before, here comes the rain again. It's going to keep coming. So I have a panel of experts here today to discuss the implications of rainfall and how we can work with it. If if you want to call in 844-295-TALK, that's 844-295-8255. If you're local, 263-9994. You can also email us at connections at wxxi.org. All right, well, I have a few more questions for our guests today because this is such a hot topic for so many people. Dr. Berger, how big is the problem in Rochester and beyond? Should we all be worrying about flooding? Like, is this something that like SOS, everyone go home, sit down with your family and figure out what you're gonna do about it? I think fortunately we don't all need to be worried about it. Um, you know, we are seeing heavier rains, but we're not seeing, for example, the kind of rain that comes with a hurricane, um, for example. And so our heavy rains are not going to be that level. We're not Hurricane Harvey getting 57 inches over mm. the course of a couple days. Um, but for many people, depending where you live, it is something you might want to think about. Um, part of it is a question of soil. So I live in Brighton and a lot of our soils are clay, which really doesn't absorb water at all. And so we have to think about where is that water going to go? If it can't go into the ground, is it going to end up in our basement? Is it going to end up creating a pond in the back? And so depending on the soil, depending on the particular landscaping, how many trees you have, um, it may be something you want to think about, especially if you find yourself having 
standing water after heavy rains, thinking about how you could try to mitigate that. It can be a big problem too when it freezes over. It's really dangerous. So uh, what, what would you say about the flip side, Karen? Are we at risk for periodic drought here in Western New York? It is possible as temperatures warm. We don't really know exactly how we will how the hydrology will change. Um, we have seen some very dry summers. I know there there have been a couple summers where the grass was our, my grass was turning brown because I wasn't watering it, um, and I would put in a plug that the clover and the and some of the other things were doing well. And also what we were hearing earlier about reducing your lawn can be a good way to manage when there's drought. So we're not going to see the kind of droughts necessarily that the south, southwestern U.S. will see, but we will see areas of having less rain than we're used to. And I know in talking to, say, the grounds people at U of R, something they think about is we want to have plants that can handle warmer weather and heavier rains, but we also need plants that we don't want to have to water because we're used to not having to water around here. Um, so how can we adapt to having kind of more extremes in both directions? Uh, I won't tell you about my fake plant collection. That's in an inappropriate for this discussion. So the uh, lawn project I was talking about before, it's grow food, not lawns. So what does that bring up for you, Jessica? Are you like, yeah, all yeah, about it? Oh, I'm all about it. Um, in fact, I'm really focusing on um, foodscaping. Um, and I've been collaborating with some people on um, really talking about how we can incorporate um, you know, some growing some of our own food, even just into our existing landscapes, rather than it feeling like a big overwhelming project, like I need to huge plot of land to grow my own food. Um, not the case at all. I've got a, a lot of people that have, you know, just incorporated it into the beds around their home um, and not had to turn it into a, a really big project. It's, it's looking at it in a simpler way and how it can work for everyone. I want to turn back to you, Karen. What kinds of areas would you say are the most vulnerable in the area? Those are going to be areas with, as I said before, low permeability soils, um, which is just a function of where you are, not anything about your structure. Um, also, you're going to see areas that have a lot of pavement because that water can't get into the ground, and so it has to run somewhere. And so in some of the urban areas where you have small amounts of green space, that's where we really want to be thinking about what we're managing managing with that water where it's going. Okay, thank you. I, I want to stick on this subject of the most vulnerable. Clem, in Monroe County's flood mitigation strategies, are there specific plans for poorer communities in Rochester that may be more vulnerable to flooding? Well, kind of as you mentioned, like even though we aren't going to be as affected by some of those extreme weather patterns that we're seeing in other parts of the country, we are starting to notice changes in how precipitation falls in our area, and that does have an impact on our systems. So, for example, as I mentioned, our combined sewer system, it mainly serves the city of Rochester, which is uh, designated, uh, large parts of it is designated as disadvantaged communities, and they can be affected by um, issues relating to the capacity of the sewer system. So as we start to see the different types of storms change to more intense storms. We start to see that, especially last year, we had a, almost a record number of intense storms. And then just a month ago, we had a rainstorm in January, which when we look back through the records, we haven't had a rainstorm event that caused a combined sewer overflow um, in our system in January for 40 years. Mm. So we're very concerned about whether this is the start of a trend that we're gonna have to start managing our systems differently because when our sewer systems back up, you know, we don't like to overflow, but that's almost the only thing that we can do to prevent um, sewage from backing up into people's houses and creating a public health issue. So we have to kind of balance all these competing priority, uh, priorities about, you know, do we make sure that we can continue to make sure our treatment plant works efficiently? Mm. Uh, do we spill some of the mostly highly diluted water once it's been raining? from our sewers into the river? Or do we have to deal with, you know, having to clean up sewage um, backups into people's basements in you know, these impoverished communities? Karen, do you have any thoughts on that and kind of the competing issues at hand here and what can be done, especially in poorer communities? Yeah, it's certainly once the water is there, it's a question of how do you manage it with the least amount of harm and making sure you're not causing disproportionate harm. And then after it, as Clem was saying, it's how do we avoid that from happening in the future? How do we really have sort of the extreme forecasts and figure out how to address that moving forward? Mm. 
If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Environmental Connections. We do want to hear from you. If you have any questions for any of my guests today, 844-295-TALK, or if you're local, 263-9994. Karen, if you are buying a house or a building right now, what would you be looking for in terms of flood risk? And, and let me just say that when we were looking, the maps we, we found, we're talking about 100-year flood risks, but since climate change is accelerating, that reference doesn't seem to be that useful. Right. That's that's a good point. There's a couple things in there to unpack. So first off, the 100-year floodplain, that's the rainfall that has a one in a 100-year chance of happening, mostly refers to stream flow uh, to along streams or along coasts. So again, if it's a heavy rainfall that might cause, cause flooding in your neighborhood, that's not going to be reflected as a floodplain. Um, but it is true that the storms that happened one in 100 years are happening much more frequently now. So we can't necessarily go by those. I think what I would look for, I would try to go after a rainy day hmm. and see if there was, see how the vegetation looked, if the vegetation was looking healthy, um, if it looked like it wasn't draining towards the house, but was draining away from the house. Probably walk around, see how much green space there was in the area, because that would also be impacting my neighbors as well as where I was living and kind of trying to get a sense of the overall natural space as well as the built environment. Great idea. What, what would you look for, Jessica? I'm definitely looking to see if there are larger trees on the property. That's always a plus. Um, you're going to know that those root systems are going to absorb more water. Uh, definitely look at the pitch and the grade of the property itself. Um, and, and, and a lot of people do call because they're getting water in their basements and they, they think about a landscape company is the first place to call. Typically, what a lot of people would think in their mind just what you did is just grade grade the soil away from the house it's as simple as that you are all just bringing this <laughs> up i'm sorry <laughs> just kidding but it's so good so common and that's okay um and honestly grading can have a lot to do with it but it's grading where just like you said you're going to grade it straight into your neighbor's lawn yeah um so yeah you have to you know think in terms of drains and things like that and, and asking questions are there is there drainage built into the property is there a French drain? Does it tie into the sewer? Where does it go? Um, things like that when you're looking at a new home. You know what I would look for? I would look for where you two are buying. <laughs> and I would move next door, especially because you will be growing food on your lawn. I'll come over with a fork and some Absolutely. olive oil. I am set. All right, we have a couple people who wrote in questions. Connie says, I have to replace my driveway and I want to use something more permeable than blacktop or cement. I live in Brighton with clay soil and already have problems with pooling water. So I think the driveway sends a lot of water into the rest of the yard. What new ways are there to pave a suburban driveway? Jessica, do you want to take that one? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, if you're calling different driveway companies, um, they do offer a, it's a permeable pavement solution. Um, so rather than the regular asphalt, they do have that kind of material and it does look kind of more like a pavement. Um, but there are options that can be a bit more costly or, you know, there are people that do install brick or paver driveways um, that offer a lot better drainage. They are unfortunately very expensive because we yeah. like, and they're gorgeous. And they I, are. <laughs> whenever I pass a house that has that, I, I like pull over and drool a little bit. And you know what? The drool goes right down because it's so permeable. <laughs> All right. That was ridiculous. Uh, so we have another question from John from Springwater is noticing a lot more trees down on his rides to and from Rochester and is wondering if the rain and weather has something to do with it and if trees are possibly weaker than usual. Who wants to take that? I yeah, can talk Jessica, to that again. Please. <laughs> uh, yeah, when you have um, the higher wind storms that we've had, when we have that really soggy wet soil, that is going to be a recipe for disaster. Uh, so a lot of trees will fall down and become uprooted. I mean, as to why that's happening, that would be more of a question for Karen or Clem. But uh, yeah, it absolutely does have a lot to do with the weather. Well, let's move on to why it's happening. Why is it happening? I am not a botanist, so <laughs> I feel I'm not kind of a place to answer that question as to why trees might seem weaker. We know that, you know, there's more extreme weather, mm -hmm. so we're seeing high wind storms. So it may just be the frequency at which these, um, you know, the trees and the, the plants are being buffeted by, you know, some of these extreme weather conditions. I don't know if 
Yeah, I would say it has the most to do with the soil, kind of picking up on what Jessica said. It's not so much that the trees are weaker, but if the soil is um, fully saturated, it's not going to be as stable. And so that wind, that strong wind when it comes, is able to knock that tree over more easily. Mm. That's why I'm a tree hugger. They need a hug. (laughs) We have a question. Is there anything preventing all the trash and litter swept into our storm drains from washing into our waterways? So um, that's something that we are studying in conjunction with a consortium of colleges, uh, including RIT and I think U of R, um, looking at the effect of some of these items, plastics, that get into our storm drains um, and ultimately you know, find their way out into our water courses. So that's a huge component of our H2O Hero education program, is only rain down the drain, um, trying to keep, uh, get people to notice where these infrastructure uh, points are and trying to keep things away from them that shouldn't really be going down them. So a lot of it is down to education, you know, making sure that people are not throwing things out of their windows when they're driving around, taking their trash home with them, disposing of things correctly, but also things like, you know, you might be washing your car, you don't really want to put, you know, those dangerous chemicals from the from the car washing, you know, into the storm drain either. That may be things that people just don't think about, right. that there's an impact beyond just where they are, that that water has to go somewhere and where that goes might be somewhere that they're not currently thinking about. Mm. I hope the person who was driving in front of me and littered out his window is listening to this right now. Jessica, how do the challenges and solutions differ between urban and rural settings in managing rain? Um, From an urban infrastructure, we've partnered with companies that are gonna focus more on larger eco-swells in parking lots. just mitigating and in, in, in managing the, the rainwater from the roof down to the parking lot. And we did partner, um, you know, Clem brought up the Rochester Museum and Science Center where, and we partnered with H2O Hero. Uh, but what we actually did install out of the rain gardens there where they did a complete overhaul of the property. Um, you know, we've done green roof installations on, you know, at Cornell University, I-Square, last year, Frederick Douglass Library. So the green roofs and the eco-swales are, are bigger from the, uh, like an urban standpoint. Uh, the, you know, more from a residential perspective, it's more of just the, the rain gardens, the rain barrels, you know, holding the rain barrel workshops, educating, um, looking at drainage, and trying to keep the water on, you know, on the property and just offering homeowner solutions on, on ways they can help. Karen, I want to turn to you. How are changing rainfall patterns affecting agricultural practices and food security in our region? Are, are we likely to see fewer cornfields and more rice paddies in western New York in the near future? That's a good question. I'm not sure that we'll see fewer of those, but we may see that more of them having to be irrigated. So if you have longer spells without rain, then your crops are going to be not thriving in the same way. And so I've heard, for example, from some of the vineyards in the Finger Lakes that have never had to irrigate their grapes now needing to think about irrigation systems, Mm -hmm. which obviously is going to cost money, is going to cost labor, um, and as well as requiring the water to come from somewhere other than the sky. So I think um, we've never really had to think about that before, but that seems like an increasing challenge as it becomes, we have these heavy rains, but if you don't have a place to store it and then you have a long stretch of time until it comes again, what are you going to do for your plants in the meantime? It seems like that's happening more and more that we have to sort of pivot and change what we're doing and and think in new innovative directions. So uh, on that note, Jessica, on on a smaller scale, is more rainfall affecting or changing the way your company is designing gardens and yards? Like, does it mean, as we've talked about, more trees with deep roots, less grass? Um, Yeah, I I think it's less less grass, less lawn, um, more meadow type lawns more or less mowing uh like we talked about before um looking at ways to look at your property and say how you know how can we absorb more water when you look at your typical lawn we get a drought in the summer and then we get a high rain event it's just going to run off so what we want to do is create more pockets areas especially along paved sections that offer buffers um you know that could collect water and yeah absolutely looking at the types of plants that can not only tolerate drought but it can also tolerate 
a larger amount of water. So it, yeah, it really comes down to the limited amount of plants that can really withstand that type of situation. Is there a particular plant that is maybe one of your go-tos that you're oh. like this one in everyone's yard? I mean, a lot of the gra like the the ornamental type of grasses, like the carexes, are are very good at both scenarios. Things like buttonbush or lobelia or or cardinal flower, I guess. Um, so, I mean, I have a whole list of, of plants, and it's easy. Honestly, you could Google it and say, you know, what are the best options for me for the DIYers? Or, you know, call call somebody that does and specializes in that, like Bercola or somebody, you know, somebody that you know, uh, to just, just to ask, uh, what are the, the right plant choices for me and my, my, my lawn or my spot? Tom from Brighton is on the line and has a question. Tom, thanks so much for calling Environmental Connections. What's your question? Hi. Hi, thanks for your thoughtful show. Um, I'm wondering about road salt and whether there's any provisions to keep that out of our Great Lakes. I've heard that the Great Lakes salinity is increasing over the last few years or yeah. decades, I guess. Thank you so Sorry, much. That's, get off the line. Yeah, that's a great question. I really appreciate it. Who wants to take that? Clem, Karen, <laughs> we're all sort of staring yeah. at each other. I mean, yeah, I'm like, great question, because I mean, I'd love a, to. That's yeah, that's a great question for the state DOT, you know, for the departments of transportation about what they're looking at in terms of technological innovations for, you know, maybe using some other types of, um, you know, road maintenance chemicals and things like that. Mm. You know, one of the other things I've heard being talked about, I don't know how effective it is yet, but also whether there are salt tolerant plants that will also be able to absorb some of those salts so that the water that then percolates down beyond those plants has a lower salinity. But I don't know if that's anywhere close to being used yet. Honestly, uh, you know, it, it, unfortunately, since there's a lot of what's there and you see it when you drive down the highway, you can almost see that haze of yeah. the salt builds up on the plants and it is not good for them. Um, and they can only tolerate so much. There are certain plants that are more tolerable. Some of the evergreens out there, Norway spruce might be one of them that that can tolerate more of a road salt situation, uh, but they do suffer, and I think it's just completely overused. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it is a great question. We'll uh, we'll have to look more into that. Clem, there must be residents in the county who have septic systems for their waste. So let's talk about that. What vulnerabilities do these systems have and how can homeowners prepare? Right. So Monroe County Pure Water is a system that, um, you know, that we um, manage. Serves about 650,000 of the 750,000 residents in the county. Mm -hmm. so there are some areas which are generally more rural that aren't connected to the county or municipal systems, and they do have, a lot of them do have septic systems. Um, back when we had uh, the issues of lake flooding in 2017, 2019, those areas, a lot of those coast kind of like shoreline communities, their septic systems were inundated with uh, increased groundwater from the lake flooding. So there were a number of projects that the state helped kick in, um, not necessarily um, within Monroe County's jurisdiction, but some of the towns within the county, so like the town of Greece, town of Renanacoit, town of Palmer, um, where they disconnected the septic systems and connected the homeowners to a low-pressure sewer system that allows that wastewater to be connected um, to the um, municipal systems and takes out some of those vulnerabilities mm. associated with septic systems. All right. Well, there's a lot more to think about there, too. There there are so many more questions that I have about rain. I also want to, you know, sing, here comes the rain again. I won't. Don't worry. <laughs> but for all of our guests, as we wrap up, what is one key piece of information that you think is crucial for our audience to understand about how managing rain and, and mitigating its impacts in Monroe County and, and similar communities could look? And we don't have too much time left, so maybe like 30 seconds each. I think um, if you're able to plant native plants in rain gardens, um, you get a lot of co-benefits as well from having more pollinators, not having to mow as much, and that we can really look to nature to sort of model some of our solutions for managing these greater extremes. And it can happen at any scale. It can happen for an institution. It can happen for a homeowner. It can happen on someone's porch. That's Dr. Karen Berger. Thank you. Jessica. Hey, Karen took my answer. No, uh, it's, it's true. Um, just landscaping your own home, just looking at it from the, the property that you live in, and I'm probably being repetitive, but yeah, just looking at what ways can you manage the water that's on your property and how can I 
keep keep the water on your property and how can you utilize it in, in your own landscape it, even by adding more plants and pollinators and natives are, are the best way to go how long have you been doing this work 22 years I've been at Bricolo. I like to tell people I started when I was 12. Um, <laughs> a long time. How long, how, how would you say it has changed the most in that time? It, it has just changed drastically in the past five years. I've really seen a lot more people um, with awareness or asking questions, um, you know, about uh, stormwater and natives and, and just using that type of language. And so I think that people are becoming a lot more educated. Well, that's great to know. Do you feel the same, Clem, that people are in the know more than they had been previously? I would hope so. And like I say, you know, we rely on programs like H2O Hero to kind of get the word out. Um, there's still obviously, you know, people who aren't necessarily familiar with all of those different things. And while we try our best at the county level, at the systems level to kind of forecast out what some of those issues will be. For example, we, we will be participating in EPA um, technical assistance program to look at how do we create more resilient water utilities and wastewater utilities. There are certain things that homeowners can do to protect themselves too. So for example, if you have a roof leader that ties into your drain, into your sewer, um, your sanitary sewer, obviously you want to disconnect that and connect that into a storm system. Mm. If you have a sump pump, that connects into that, that's also an illegal collection. So look around your house, see what you have available, and um, lo your local municipality can usually help you out and figure out what is the best way to kind of protect your, your property. Well, that's a, a great note to end on, but I am curious if you are hopeful. I am, I think, you know, we're starting to see a lot more interest in um, what the effects of climate change are. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes events to happen in your backyard, quite literally, to kind of get people to focus on it. But we are seeing a lot more attention paid on that. And like I said, you know, for the county, our next phase in adaptation and residency planning will start to look at the impacts on things like health and other community aspects. Thank you so much. And there you have it, the closing of our exploration into the world reshaped by rain under the shadow of climate change. My deepest appreciation goes to Dr. Karen Berger, Jessica Dimazio, and Clem Chung for their pivotal insights today. This dialogue, it reminds me, it reminds all of us that mitigating rain, managing rain in this era of climate change, it's not just about, well, weathering the storm. It's about reimagining our entire relationship with every drop that falls from the sky. So this conversation has been a clarion call from, from the science that deciphers the message in rain patterns to the strategies that turns our urban landscapes into sponges for stormwater. Thank you.